The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. I never will be able to understand how a person can not only take a life, but be callous enough to lay their heads on a pillow at night less than a thousand yards from where the victim lies. I guess it takes the same kind of person who's conniving enough to enact a long-term scheme to enrich herself from her despicable actions. The same person who is willing to inflict unspeakable, never-ending pain on an innocent family, who is willing to go to any length to satisfy her narcissistic, insatiable greed. That same person has to be possessed by an unspeakable evil. From the Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia, by Clay Bryant. Welcome back, Murder Boogies. I am your host, Jill, and this is my True Crime Book Club podcast, where I bring the best true crime books to you. Just a quick shout out to my new Murder Bookies on Patreon, Rebecca Catalflu and Danielle Scott. I cannot do this without you. And I also see both Dhaka, Bangladesh, and Toronto, Canada, subscribing like crazy. So thank you for this. It really matters to me. This is episode 68, Second Cast, All's Well That Ends Well, on author Clay Bryant's book, The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling the Black Widow's Web. I always suggest that you listen to parts one and parts two before Second Cast part three, especially since we're delving into two books in this series. Definitely read them both. There are additional twists and turns that will amaze you. When we paused in episode 67, part two, all is not well, last episode, the truth of what happened to Gwendolyn Moore came out. And she can finally rest in peace, as can her family. Justice comes in many forms, and sometimes it's not the one we were expecting. Well, then we got another cold case that Clay Bryant investigated. Fred Wilkerson, missing 17 years. In 1987, after a loving Thanksgiving dinner with his family and plans to head out on a work trip with his son, Tim, in the early morning, Fred just disappeared, and then the case went cold. Clay Bryant believes in God's loving hand, and a chance meeting between him and Tim Wilkerson brought the Wilkerson disappearance to Clay's attention. D.A. Pete Scandalakis told Clay to go for it and the dropped ball was picked up. So backing up a little bit here, in 1973, Fred Wilkerson was hired at Gusto Brands, and quickly his solid work ethic saw him promoted to management. He and his wife Carolyn had a pretty good life. They were raising their two kids. Fred was a dedicated father, always attending Tracy and Tim's games and events. A decade later, Gusto Brand hired a new bookkeeper, Connie Quedens. And shortly thereafter, she began calling Fred at home for help with, like, everything and anything. 
and this led to Fred leaving his 22-year marriage. He moved into the Versailles apartment with Roger Campbell, who was his daughter Tracy's fiancé. And who was a regular visitor? Connie Quedens. In December 1983, Fred's wife Carolyn filed for divorce, which was finalized in February 1984. Fred eventually bought a small house on Young's Mill Road in LaGrange, with Connie helping with the down payment. In March 1985, Fred bought the three acres directly adjacent to the small house. A month later, Connie called Fred in the midst of another crisis. She explained that husband Gary, oh yeah, yeah, she's still married. She explained to Gary that she had loaned Fred the down payment for the house. And now Fred was making no efforts to repay it. So Gary is demanding that she sue Fred in state court for the return of the money. And sure enough, a suit was filed by Connie and Gary against Fred, with them receiving a $6,600 judgment. Fred sold the small house to his future son-in-law, Roger Campbell, and Roger gave the Quedens $4,500 plus a motorcycle as a down payment. Connie then demanded that Fred take out a $20,000 term life insurance policy with her as beneficiary. Now, there are so many, but this is a big red flag. Perhaps I am allowing hindsight to influence me, but this man isn't even married to Connie yet. And she is still married to Gary, and she just sued him. So now she wants to be on his life insurance? He also has two children, and you'd think any insurance would take care of them not an independent woman with a husband and a fiancé. Well, I know every situation is different, but keep your eyes open. In May 1985, Fred bought a trailer and he placed it on the land that he had purchased. Connie was there often, but she parked behind the trailer and would pull a tarp over her car. That is peculiar, and another red flag. Why hide your presence at the trailer, but show up and take photos at family functions? Something's off here, right? October 1985, Connie finally filed for divorce from Gary. Only nothing actually happened to move this thing along until shortly before Fred vanished into the ether in 1987, so two years from now. April 1986, now Fred purchased 14.5 acres of land on Ware's Crossword Road intending to build a house that would be his and Connie's marital residence. Fred also conveyed half interest in the land to Connie, with the deed stating that it was conveyed for, quote, love and affection, end quote. And then the couple went together to apply for an $89,000 construction loan from First Federal Savings and Loan. Next, Connie insists that Fred quit his job with Gusto Brands and get a better paying job. Following her orders, he promptly did so and began driving for fast food, mer fast food merchandisers, his final job. The grand finale? Fred made a will, leaving all of his property to Connie if he should pass. All right, I can't see the forest through the trees because of all the red flags here. Good grief. Oh, they just cannot see it coming. March. Fred moved into the new house and was wrapping up some code-compliant construction issues. Connie now decided she wanted a pool. So a few weeks later, Fred applied for a loan for the pool construction. But 
He was overextended and needed a co-signer. Close friend of his, Don Rainey, agreed to do so. And this is when Tim moved into the house with Connie, her two sons, Garrett and Gurin, and his dad. Next, Connie convinced Fred to cede to her the other half of the property. Well, you see, with her divorce pending, it would help her to keep custody of the boys if all the land was in her name. And what loving father could refuse his maternal fiancé? So on May 8, 1987, the property was totally put into Connie Quedon's name. Then she applied for a permanent mortgage to pay for the construction loan in the amount of $123,000. Fred's name is not on this. However, her debt ratio exceeded her credit. But undeterred, Connie talked to her employer, a man named Clarence Fincher, to co-sign the note, making her the sole proprietor of the home that Fred had built for them. Now, totally coincidentally, Clarence Fincher had just lost his wife of 50 years. Yeah, he might possibly be an easy mark for Spider-Woman, just saying. Now, Connie begins to act on her divorce from Gary. And that, finally, after two years, becomes final August 10th. Labor Day weekend, 1987, Connie and Tim began to argue, and she called the sheriff's office, having both Tim and Fred arrested for criminal trespass, and they were escorted from the property. After posting a bond and with a police escort, Fred was permitted to return to gather his belongings and Gary Quedens moved in with his ex-wife the next day. So she has completely depleted Fred's money, destroyed his family, ended his 22-year marriage. I am not giving Fred a pass. I mean, he is culpable for two. It takes two to tango. But I can see the manipulation being worked here hard to make this thing happen. And it is a really ugly, ugly thing. Depressed over this turn of events, Fred and Tim moved into an apartment. On November 23rd, the bank called in the $10,000 loan Fred had co-signed with Don Rainey for the pool, and Fred does not have the money to repay it. Now, fortunately, Don did. Don had witnessed this entire Connie saga and was convinced that Fred had had the wool pulled over his eyes from the very beginning, which began with, quote, Ooh, Fred, help me. There's a snake in the garden. I'm scared. End quote. Don insisted that if their friendship was going to survive, Fred needed to see an attorney. And that would be H.J. Thomas. He was going to try to get the money Fred had been conned out of back. And H.J. Thomas believed there was a good chance that Fred would win. So on November 24th, 1987, H.J. Thomas filed a lawsuit in the amount of $37,071.21, which included the initial cost of the 14.5 acres, the $10,000 loan with Don for the pool, and what Fred had spent out of pocket on material and supplies verified by receipts when he was building the house. Connie Quedens was served on Tuesday, November 25th, two days before Thanksgiving. Calling Fred, she launched into a venomous, profound, laced tirade, raging against him, with Fred lamely explaining, I had to. Now, Connie and Gary had previous plans to visit relatives in Florida over Thanksgiving, and they were going to drive down on Wednesday. 
good friend of theirs, Joan Holderman, was going to be caring for their animals while they were out of state. But Connie abruptly changed her mind, calling Joan and canceling. She wasn't going to go because, quote, I have to stay and protect my property, end quote. Now, this is significant. After Fred's disappearance, the initial investigators missed this entirely. No one spoke with the Holdemans, even though they were the closest friends to the Quedens and Fred Wilkerson. So this is a huge oversight and a huge mistake. I mean, it happens. We are all human, but holy moly. November 27, 1987, Thanksgiving Day. Fred had dinner at his sister Jules with both Tim and Tracy and other family and friends. Fred departed, saying he had to rest up before he and Tim were heading out in the early morning on their road trip to Tennessee. Home around 11 p.m., a friend of Tim's, Tiffany Roberts, woke Fred up looking for her boyfriend who was out with Tim, and Tiffany would be the last person to see Fred. Sometime after she left, Connie called Fred, demanding that he come over to discuss the lawsuit. Tim arrived home around 1 a.m., and Fred was not there. His bags were packed and ready to go, but Fred was never seen again. Roughly a month later, December 24th, so right before Christmas, a clue materialized. Fred's champagne-colored 1987 Honda was found in the long-term parking lot at the Hartfield-Jackson Airport in Atlanta. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation confiscated the vehicle and processed it for evidence. It had been wiped clean, so no identifiable fingerprints were found. Now, to me, that is another clue. How many of you wipe down your car when you park at the airport? I mean, why would anyone? Now, inside, there were a few of Fred's belongings and two of his uncashed paychecks. Now, that is very strange to me, too. If you decided to go off and build a new life, some cash would go a long way to making that happen, don't you think? You would have cashed those checks, not left them in the car. Now, law enforcement is suspicious of Connie Quedens, but there's still nothing to directly tie her to Fred's disappearance. And as she lawyered up, she said very, very little to investigators, which is the smart thing to do in her right. Then she refused to cooperate further, threatening legal action if they continued to press her. As Clay puts it, quote, charge me or don't bother me, end quote. So they were at an impasse. Seven painful years later, Connie filed an action in probate court to have Fred declared dead and for herself to be appointed executor of his estate. It was revealed that she held not one, but two term life insurance policies on Fred. Clay observes that his daddy told him, quote, spots on a leopard never change, end quote. This woman is a narcissist. She had gotten away with this for seven years feeling totally empowered, she has control of this thing. Taking this final step would seal the deal on her long-term plan. While the Wilkerson family rightly objected, I admit this would have just blown my mind, the sheer audacity of this woman. Attorney Peter Alford came aboard to defend the family's position in a long, drawn-out probate hearing. During all these legal shenanigans, Alford dredged up the missing person case and how entwined Connie and Fred were financially and personally. 
He also pointed out the sequence of events that Thanksgiving evening and the discovery of Fred's car at the airport on Christmas Eve. The coverage in the LaGrange Daily News was extensive given the explosive nature of the case. In the settlement, Connie received $10,000 from the life insurance policy she had been paying on regularly since Fred's disappearance. The second policy for $20,000, while the premiums had continued to be funded by Fred's checking account until all the monies therein were depleted in September 1989, and the policy had lapsed, so Connie did not collect on the second policy. Not long after the probate hearing, Peter Alford received a phone call from Lisa Holderman Miles, who had been following the case in the newspapers, and she had information on the Wilkerson case. Giving her his full attention, Lisa told Peter she was friends with both the Wilkersons and the Quedens, and it was not unusual for Connie to call asking for help. Well, boy, does that ring true. We know that. Thanksgiving weekend, 1987, Connie Quedens called, asking Lisa to pick her up at the Atlanta airport. Now, now, back in 1987, Lisa was a teenager, and she never knew that Fred's car had been found at the airport. She only learned about this reading in the newspaper articles on the probate case. Mind blown, Peter Alford recognized the importance of this information, and he called the Troop County Sheriff's Office, speaking to the investigator in charge of the case at the time, Kenneth Reed. Alford followed up by putting the information in a letter to the Sheriff's Office and filled in Tim and Tracy Wilkerson. The anticipation was high that this could be a game changer. Only nothing happened. After months went by, they just assumed that the lead had led nowhere. Clay Bryant cannot guess why this information wasn't processed, delved into, and investigated. Quote, not only was the ball dropped, but it was also fumbled off the playing field. In the end, it was Peter Alford's long-ignored revelation that would breathe life back into a case of the disappearance of Fred Wilkerson and revive the effort to unravel the Black Widow's web, end quote. So Clay knew he needed to speak with the now-adult Lisa Holderman-Miles. He knew her dad, Bob Holderman, and he worked over at Lucan Chevrolet as a mechanic. So Clay paid the man a visit on September 4, 2003. Explaining why he was here, Bob wasn't surprised. Like so many others, he thought Connie had something to do with Fred's disappearance. When Lisa saw the article about Fred's car in the airport, she called Tim and Tracy's lawyer. Bob said they were all sure that someone would come and interview Lisa, but no one came or called until now when Clay showed up. Where was Lisa now? Well, she was married and living in Goose Creek, South Carolina, near Charleston, and her dad supplied Clay with the phone number. Fun fact. Back in the day, people memorized the phone numbers of people close to them. Yeah, we used to know them all by heart. All right, as soon as Clay got back to the office, he called a very surprised Lisa Holderman. Yes, she confirmed. She'd spoken with Peter Alford after reading the story in the paper back in 1995. They set up for time to meet at her office in the morning. Informing Pete Scandalakis, he was as enthusiastic as Clay himself. Go for it. Departing LaGrange at 4 a.m., 
This meeting with Lisa would trigger a cascade of rapid events moving towards the end goal, justice. Face-to-face with Lisa, she filled Clay in on how she knew Connie and Gary Quedens. Her dad, Bob Holderman, became friends with Gary as they both loved race cars, and this went back to their days of living in West Virginia. When Gary and Connie moved to Troop County, Georgia, Gary contacted Bob, telling him about a job opportunity in LaGrange. With the poor economic conditions in Appalachia, Bob moved the Holderman family, and soon he was working at Lucan Chevrolet. The Holderman-Quedon's friendship was an old one, but mostly because of the camaraderie between Bob and Gary, and Connie would call, requesting help for this and help for that all the time. Now, Lisa, who graduated high school in June 1987, recalled that Thanksgiving. She had worked the night shift at Florence Hand Nursing Home in LaGrange. When she got off work that Saturday morning, her sister was on the phone with Connie, who wanted her to drive a car to the Atlanta airport. While her sister couldn't, Lisa was willing to help. When Lisa got to Connie's, she met her in the driveway. Connie explained she had a friend visiting from West Virginia who had a rental car, but the friend had too much to drink so Connie was going to drive the rental to the airport and turn it in, and she needed to be picked up. Well, Lisa asked where her friend was, and Connie said that she had gone to get gas, which struck Lisa as weird. I mean, wasn't the friend drunk, which is why she couldn't drive? And also weird was the configuration. Connie's car was sitting in the driveway, the garage door was closed, which is never, never how Connie kept her house. Well. Ever in control, Connie gave Lisa explicit instructions for her to drive through LaGrange to get on the highway, which is also weird because it adds 30 minutes to the drive. And she should pick up Connie in front of the terminal, not at the rental car drop-off. And no speeding, by the way. No shrugging, Lisa did as she was told. Picking up Connie, Lisa was kind of surprised at how quickly she had done all of this and had taken her friend to the hotel and Connie was evasive and dodgy. They drove back to her house, and now Lisa noticed the garage door was up, the garage empty, and she drove in and parked her car. Lisa then left and went home, but it was a weird sequence of events. It wasn't until a few days later Lisa learned of Fred's disappearance. Hearing about the car at the airport for the first time in 1995, she put two and two together, realizing Connie had driven Fred's car to the airport, and she had picked her up. And there was more. Shortly thereafter, Connie had hired Lisa and her sisters to come and drag brush in an effort to fill an old well on her property. After it was filled in, Connie set the rubbish on fire, trying to burn the brush away, but it never did quite catch making a lot of smoke. At some point, Connie had a man with equipment come and fill in the well, and Lisa now believed 100% that Connie killed Fred and dumped his body in that old well. Lord, what is it with people killing other people and throwing them into old wells in West Georgia? That is just peculiar to me. Anyway, Clay assured Lisa that her information would play an important role in finding justice for Fred and the Wilkerson's. Then Lisa said something chilling. She realized that she had helped bury Fred as a naive teenage girl. 
Back in Georgia, Pete Scandalakis was thrilled with the progress Clay was making, and it was time to update Sheriff Donnie Turner and Captain Willis Grizzard. The next step was locating where the well had been on the property and to get a search warrant if necessary. Circling back, Clay called Bob Holderman to get current information on the Quedans. Did he happen to know where that old well was located? First of all, he said that Connie and Gary were once again divorcing and that Gary had actually been staying with him for a bit while the dust was settling. And Bob kept Connie out of his orbit. He did not like how she treated people. Very astute, Bob. But about the well, yeah, he had a general idea. Around the time this was all happening, Connie had called him, asking if he had anything to get rid of, even old appliances, because she was filling up the old well, because it was a hazard. Oh, oh, and this guy, Jesse Patterson, he had done some work for her with a bobcat, meaning the construction equipment. Clay made a mental note to have a conversation with Jesse, a man he knew, a retired U.S. Army Master Sergeant. Now, Clay was aware that Jesse Patterson had had some problems with Connie. Driving past the Hillcrest Bait and Tackle Grocery Convenience Store, Clay spotted Jesse, so clearly the stars were aligning. Pulling in, he greeted Jesse, updating him, and it was very obvious that Jesse was not a fan of Connie's. After Jesse retired in 1989, his father introduced him to Connie. His dad had done some yard work for her. Well, hasn't everybody really? Doing some additional landscaping, Connie called Jesse, asking him to do some work for her. And over the next few days, he worked for her, which included filling in that old well. With his business beginning to do well, Connie offered to set Jesse up to do his books properly. He could even leave some equipment on her property, being over 14 acres, and it sounded like a fine offer and he accepted. As his business continued to grow, Connie began to exert more control over it. Finally, Jesse told her she had to go, and he'd be looking after his own books from this point on. Connie erupted into a rage, going ballistic, attacking his truck with a hammer, doing some real damage. Jesse had to have the sheriff's office come and help him retrieve his equipment from her land. Well, could Jesse point out where that old well had been? Well, yes, he could. Parked alongside the road, Jesse pointed to some briar bushes at the top of the hill. Quote, that well is not more than 10 feet from that stand of briars. I filled it in with a bobcat, and Connie and another lady stood there and watched. End quote. At that time, the well was filled up with junk to about 10 feet from the top. In earnest tones, Clay asked if he thought Connie could have killed Fred. And Jesse, quote, didn't mince words. That woman has the devil in her, end quote. Would she have needed help to get his body into the well? Jesse doubted it. He had seen her using a chainsaw, carrying fence posts, and handling bags of animal feed with no assistance. This was one strong woman. Jesse added that she owned an ATV, and that could easily have been used to help her maneuver the body. Clay thanked him for his time. With all this new information, Clay was reasonably certain Connie had murdered Fred and his remains were in that well. Armed with ample probable cause, he was sure they could get a search warrant. Having kept his boss Pete in the loop, a phone call confirmed his support. 
letting the assistant DA review it before presenting it to the judge. Pete was very proud of the progress Clay had made on this cold case. But the warrant really wasn't the challenge, however. The search of the well and Connie's house was going to require a huge amount of coordination and cooperation among several agencies, let alone moving a ton or more of dirt during the excavation. Every legal box had to be checked and double-checked. There'd be no ground for appeals, provided they got a conviction. Judge Alan Keeble, you remember him? In the Gwendolyn Moore case, Judge Keeble lost his temper when defense attorney Stenberger told the court Marshall Moore was having surgery on his aneurysm and he couldn't be in court. Well, he is also the search warrant judge and a very fair one, not the sort to rubber stamp anything. Calling ahead, Secretary Deborah Taylor said the judge would see Clay. Clay explained that he had a search warrant for the Fred Wilkerson case, and the judge took the affidavit and read it with increasing concentration. Straightening his back, the judge said, quote, Well, it certainly looks like you did your homework, end quote, and signed the affidavit and search warrant as Clay exhaled with relief. If Judge Keeble saw the merits of the case, Clay knew he was going down the right path. The clock was running, however. They now had just 10 days to serve the search warrant at the Quedens. If they exceeded 10 days, a new affidavit and search warrant would be necessary. If they botched the mathematics, any evidence located with an expired search warrant would render the evidence inadmissible. It was doubtful that this was going to happen, but the pressure was on. A flurry of activity kicked in, which included notifying Captain Willis Grizzard at the sheriff's office, and they divided up as many tasks as they could. During the Gwendolyn Moore case, Clay had had to exhume her body for the second autopsy. Well, that was a snap compared to this. This wasn't an exhumation. This is an archaeological dig, searching for a body shrouded in much uncertainty. Staying in his lane, Clay contacted Dr. Richard Snow, the same forensic anthropologist who had worked with Dr. Sperry earlier. I am familiar with Dr. Snow's work at the UN, recovering and identifying bodies from mass graves in Bosnia. Today, Dr. Snow is president of the Forensic Anthropology Consulting Services in Knoxville, Tennessee, and is a consultant for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But now, Clay needs Dr. Snow's experience in recovering a victim's body from a covered, abandoned well. They spoke of specifics regarding the well and the surrounding terrain, which consisted of open pasture and plenty of access from a county road. Noting the urgency and the running clock, Dr. Snow suggested that they get going on Tuesday. He would bring his equipment and tools necessary to excavate a cylindrical well. They needed heavy equipment to clear away the areas surrounding the well, too, and then they would dig into the well itself, probably by hand so as not to damage any evidence that might be there. A lot of dirt would be displaced. For every foot they went down, they would need to clear a foot away from the well in all directions, at the same depth, to ensure safety. Quote, if the well was excavated to a depth of 30 feet, this would require an excavation that was 60 feet wide and 30 feet deep. 
end quote. They'd get started on September 30th at 8 a.m. Clay was nervous and was hoping he hadn't bitten off more than he could chew. Captain Grizzard was handling security of the site and the search of the interior of the home. Connie would be interviewed by both of them during the excavation. Next, get the equipment and personnel to work it, meeting all safety guidelines. And crap, it was already Friday afternoon. Clay would need the help from a good friend of Fred's, who we've talked about before, Raymond Vaughan. Very successful, Raymond ran a lucrative trucking business that had expanded into heavy equipment of just the type they needed. Clay said he was confident Fred was in the well. He just needed to borrow the equipment. And immediately, Raymond volunteered not only the machinery for the excavation, but to fund it. Hey, Fred was an old friend of his. Relieved, Clay had agonized over the cost to the taxpayers of Trope County, at least several thousand dollars. And if they turned up nothing, he'd not only have egg on his face, but he'd have blown a chunk of the department's resources. With Raymond's help, if this all came to nothing, the cost would be far less mortifying. Boy, I do appreciate that a public servant is taking care and is being frugal with the people's tax dollars. Thank you for that, Clay. And although Clay had kept them in the loop, it was time to update Tim and Tracy Wilkerson. Fearing disappointing them once again, he had waited until his ducks were in a row. He explained how this would unfold and asked them to keep this on the down low to maintain the element of surprise. All agreed. Monday came with Clay quadruple checking all the details. That night, he tossed and turned, probably not getting more than 30 minutes sleep. The what-ifs haunted him. What if Fred wasn't there? What if we found nothing? What if he'd only tore open old wounds? By morning, he'd know if they were suffering an excruciating defeat or successfully deconstructing the Black Widow's web. Reckoning Day September 30th, 2003. Simple. Either Connie Quedens would be held accountable or she would not. If not, Clay would be held accountable for squandering thousands of dollars, wasting man hours, and bringing a huge amount of public criticism down upon the district attorney's office. Well, case sera, sera. Dr. Snow was assisted by agents with the GBI and he directed the operation. Raymond Vaughan arrived with his son, Terry, and Alice Hyatt, both seasoned equipment operators. Deputies maintained a secure perimeter around the property, and Clay would serve Connie with the search warrant for the residence. Parking everyone in the street, Clay walked up and knocked on Connie's door. A man named Terry Burris, who was living with her, answered. Oh, Connie wasn't here. She was doing her Christian duty with the Salvation Army. Well, bless her heart. Well, now everyone stood down because nothing could happen until the warrant was served to Connie. Getting the word, she arrived quickly enough, accepting the search warrant and saying she had nothing to hide so they could search all they wanted. They hadn't needed a search warrant. Duly noted, if she later contested the legality of the search warrant, her voluntary consent would supersede the search warrant. And to Clay's astonishment, Connie signed the consent to search. Then she was told they were starting with the old well. 
With a hard, cold, icy stare, she snapped, quote, If he's down there, I don't know anything about it, end quote. And Clay gave the go-ahead. Machines and people were on the move, and Captain Grizzard and Clay stayed with Connie in her living room, noticing the shift in demeanor from cold arrogance to heightened anxiety. Connie paced around the room, sat down, and repeated the cycle. Clay asked her a few questions about some inconsistencies he had discovered in her story over the years. Uh, why hadn't she gone to Florida for Thanksgiving with Gary and the boys? Today she claimed that at the last minute she had had to work. Had she gone anywhere else over the weekend? No, no, she'd only gone to work, nowhere else. Clay mentioned that in her December 1987 statement, she stated the last time she'd seen or spoken to Fred, he was at the funeral of their good friend a month earlier. But in her sworn testimony before the probate court or the life insurance, she said right before Fred disappeared, she had called him to discuss a possible solution to the lawsuit he'd filed against her. Frustrated, Connie said she'd just forgotten about the phone call. Well, it was time to confront her. Clay said he had a witness who stated that Connie had requested her to pick up Connie at the Atlanta airport the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 1987. The weekend, Fred vanished. Clay found it odd that if the witness was correct, she'd been picked up at the airport 100 yards from where Fred's car was found. Paraphrasing now, he watched as the terror in Connie's eyes welled up, and after a moment of silence, she began to stammer, launching into an absurd fairy tale. That Thanksgiving night, she called Fred asking him to come over to discuss a resolution to the lawsuit. He arrived with Connie in the laundry room, cutting pipes to make closet rods, and a marked police car pulled in behind him. She had no idea to who the car belonged. A uniformed cop got out of the squad car, along with a woman in a nurse's uniform and the trio began to argue with each other. At some point, Fred got into the car with them, driving off, and she never saw Fred again. So wait, Fred is arguing with the nurse and the cop. Like Fred who, Connie? This Fred, Fred Wilkerson, does not argue with anyone. He avoids conflict at all cost. All right, back to her fairy tale. The next day, Connie said she got a call, probably from one of the people that Fred left with, who gave her orders. Drive his car to the airport and leave it there, or she'd never see her children alive again. Obeying, she called Lisa Holderman and had her come pick her up where she'd left Fred's car. So she yes, yes, she drove Fred's car, but she didn't kill Fred. So Clay asked why in the last 17 years. Connie never reported this to the police. Her reply was beyond ridiculous. Giving Clay her best deer-in-the-headlights look, Connie said the man in uniform that night resembled Captain Willis Grizzard, and she was afraid to report what she'd seen. Captain Grizzard's expression was of utter disbelieving amazement. But Buddy Bryant had prepared his son Clay for this one. Quote, the problem with a lie is that you will always have to tell another to cover the previous lie. And you will, at some point, having told so many lies you can't keep up with them, 
that they will start to contradict each other. Connie now found herself in that situation. Everything she said about Fred's disappearance was totally contradictory to everything she had said before. End quote. As Clay was trying to process the seriousness of Connie's absurd fairy tale, the radio cracked to life. Quote, we have human remains, end quote. Beyond the charred debris, branches, and trash Lisa Huddleman mentioned, partially clothed remains were found, partially rolled up in a carpet that matched that of the laundry room where Connie had been cutting closet rods. In the pants pocket were keys and a chapstick. Tim later confirmed the keys and chapstick belonged to Fred. Also in the carpet was a rusted hacksaw and several pieces of cut pipe. Dr. Snow recovered all the skeletal remains, cataloging and reconstructing the skeleton. There were several broken ribs, consistent with debris being dumped on top of a body. The single most significant injury, however, was to the skull an elongated hole in the back of the head. This indicated an execution-style gunshot wound from behind. Dr. Snow had seen many of these injuries among the victims in the mass graves of Bosnia. After nearly two decades of anxiety, worry, and uncertainty, Fred Wilkerson had been found. They could now put their father to rest with dignity, but much needed to be done to see someone held accountable for his death. Now, the house was a crime scene, and the work was really beginning. Grizzard and GBI crime specialist Tony Lima did a thorough search, and the results would be critical to the prosecutor's case. Prior to beginning the excavation, Pete Scandalakis decided that upon discovery of a body, Connie Quedens would be arrested on probable cause. They'd signed the warrants later. With Captain Grizzard and Deputy Terry Wood, Clay spoke the satisfactory, long-overdue words, quote, Connie Quedens, you are under arrest for the murder of Fred Wilkerson, end quote. Mirandizing her, she was placed in handcuffs and put in the patrol car. Word had gotten out in spite their efforts, and people, media, camera trucks were lined up and down Ware's Crossroad. When the patrol car, with Connie inside, went by, people broke into cheers and applause. Clay hoped Fred was finally free of the Black Widow's web. Clay wondered, as we all do, why Connie behaved like this. At times, she came off as cunning and meticulous, at other times, totally careless. Clay's opinion shifted as he got to know her. She was an arrogant narcissist and just plain evil. She wasn't sloppy. She just reveled in the terrible things she had done having zero regrets for anything. Connie liked to have trophies to remind her of her plots, her manipulations, her wrongdoings, much like a serial killer. Right, for example, in the laundry room where she killed Fred, there were still signs of blood spatter on the walls, cast off from the gunshot wound. She never cleaned it up. She also kept the invoice from where she ordered the replacement carpet. The search found several firearms, which were illegal for her to possess since she was a convicted felon. All this was bad, but Captain Grizzard's mind was blown with this discovery, sharing it with Clay. Quote, we found two audio cassette tapes here you've got to hear, end quote. 
The first one, Connie and Gary going through a divorce, and Connie was heard making demands, quote, I want my Walther pistol. Gary replied, Connie, there were only three Walther pistols. The two with concentric serial numbers I bought from Marcus Smith for the boys, and the one that someone may have used at Fred's time that you had me get rid of, end quote. Well, now that's rather damning, but this is nothing compared to the second tape. Connie recorded this after she was served with Fred's lawsuit right before he disappeared. On the tape, Connie launches into a vulgar tirade, demanding to know why he filed it. And Fred's voice on tape weakly replies, I had to. At that point, Connie screams prophetically, quote, Fred Wilkerson, you son of a bitch, I will kill you. Unquote. How utterly stupid of her to keep this. But this tells us her degree of confidence. She was 100% certain she would never get caught, which is how many are caught. Overconfidence. Connie thrived on and relished the idea that she had gotten away with murder, laying the foundation that her own web would ensnare her. Now Gary Quedens needed to be interrogated about the pistol on the audio tape. October 26, 2003, Gary and his attorney, Robert Watley, appeared at the sheriff's office sitting down with Clay and all the major law enforcement folks. Gary's story. He returned from Florida with the boys and he found a pistol on the floor, turning to Connie for an explanation. She said he needed to get rid of it because something happened here and they didn't want to be implicated in it. Not long after, Gary learned of Fred's disappearance and figured out that Connie was likely responsible. He kept the pistol until the next gun show in Columbus, where he sold it. When asked about the well, Gary said that Connie had become concerned that one of the boys would fall in it and she'd taken care of filling it in. Now, the police were certain that Gary reasonably believed Connie had killed Fred. Was he head over heels gaga over a manipulative woman? Or was he fully aware of the evil deeds of Connie Quedens and was her accomplice in the cover-up? Quote, Gary had to be just as gullible as Fred or just as evil as Connie. End quote. Once again, Clay and I agreed that Gary wasn't scared of Connie not if he was sleeping under the same roof as a woman who had just murdered her lover. He should have realized he was in as much danger as Fred had been, but he also should have reasoned that finding the gun was Connie's attempt to frame Gary for the crime. Why else would she have left a fired gun on the floor? Now, these can all be true, and we do not know for certain which are and which are not. Clay was able to confirm that Gary and the boys were in Port Ritchie, Florida, over Thanksgiving weekend 1987. Right before the trip, Gary had purchased a new car in LaGrange. In Florida, the car had had some serious mechanical problems, and a Florida dealer was able to arrange a swap with the dealer back in LaGrange, and Gary was able to get a new car in Florida, which substantiated his alibi. Gary did not kill Fred Wilkerson. But, legal fact, Gary Quedens willingly disposed of a gun that by his own admission on tape, he believed had been used to kill Fred Wilkerson. After much soul-searching, it came down to the desire to see Connie held accountable for the murder, 
greatly outweighed the desire to punish Gary. Gary was arrested and charged with tampering with evidence and then offered immunity for testifying against Connie. Clay was conflicted about this deal. Gary had withheld information about Fred's faith, causing untold years of pain for the Wilkerson family. But, quote, sometimes, as unfair as it seems, you deal with the devil to get the witch, end quote. Preparing for trial began. They knew that the defense would attack the identification of the body. To thwart this, DNA testing was done. But remember, this is 2003, so the technology is not what it is now. Dr. Snow extracted mitochondrial DNA, a sequence that is derived from the maternal lineage. With no DNA from Fred, his next of kin was Sister Jewel's daughter, Jane Hendricks. The DNA showed that Jane Hendricks and the body in the well came from the same maternal line. Adding in the keys and chapstick, Fred's identity was established. Yeah, yeah. The defense would certainly try to have the audio tapes thrown out. But recall the caution used in securing the search warrant. They were on strong legal grounds, and the tape was evidence of premeditation by Connie. The canceled checks used to pay for Fred's insurance went a long way towards a financial motive, too. The prosecution planned to introduce the whole skeleton as evidence, to roll it in on a gurney in front of the jury, and the defense objected. This was too prejudicial and inflammatory, but the prosecution believed it was necessary to support Dr. Snow's testimony and conclusion of cause of death. Judge William Lee oversaw the pretrial hearings on evidence, and this man had a solid reputation. His decisions were rarely, if ever, contested, and if it was, the appeal was almost never successful. He ruled to allow all the evidence the prosecution wanted in. The defense would claim that Connie had no motive. With the prosecution countering, she had $37,000 worth of motive. They claimed Connie couldn't physically commit the crime. But do you recall what Jesse Patterson said about Connie's strength? Ultimately, 12 jurors would decide what was and was not valid, and if Connie Quedens, beyond a reasonable doubt, had killed Fred Wilkerson and placed his body in that well. Pete Scandalakis was a believer in the KISS method of prosecution. Keep it simple, stupid. Juries have to follow the evidence presented, and making it overdone, over-technical, does not help the case. And he would not fall into this snare. He had a strong, factual case. Connie would spend 13 months in Trope County Jail waiting for her November 1st, 2004 trial to begin. A few weeks beforehand, Carolyn, Fred's ex-wife, called, requesting that Clay swing by. And of course, he obliged her. Now remarried to Fred Alsabrook, she was a devoted mom to Tim and Tracy and their children. Unfortunately, Carolyn had cancer and she was beginning to fail. Lying on the sofa, she told Clay she was keenly aware of the emotional roller coaster her children had suffered when Fred went missing. Now, she wasn't sure she'd live to see Connie Quedens brought to justice. Did he really believe she would be found guilty? Trying to keep his composure, Ray managed to promise her, quote, that with what we have, it will take a jury longer to elect a foreman than it will to convict her, 
end quote. Smiling weakly, Carolyn thanked him for all he had done, and they parted with Clay praying to God that he hadn't been a liar. One can never predict what a jury would do. Prosecutor Pete Scandalakis was facing Connie's attorney, a man with an excellent reputation, Arthur Skin Edge. Murder bookies, these southern names are truly priceless. All right, practicing out of nearby Noonan, Edge had been a state senator. His hometown was LaGrange. Jury selection began before Judge Lee went smoothly. Day two began with opening statements, with Pete laying out the prosecution's evidence. Skin Edge attacked this, claiming it was all circumstantial evidence. Connie was the victim of an overzealous prosecution who failed to see that she was physically incapable of committing this crime. Pete presented multiple pieces of evidence against her, including her checks that paid for the life insurance taken out shortly before Fred disappeared, and her motion to declare him dead seven years later in order to collect. Captain Grizzard, retired FBI agent Roy Olinger, who had found Fred's car at the airport, and Clay all testified. Tim Wilkerson and Tracy Wilkerson Campbell gave emotional testimony about identifying their dad's remains and the relationship between him and Connie. Joan Holderman testified about Connie not making the trip to Florida because she had to protect her property. Connie's son, Garen Quedens, testified that his mother had a volatile personality and that she had not come to Florida and that Dad found a gun on the floor when they returned home. Jesse Patterson testified about working for Connie and seeing her doing heavy manual labor. But it was the testimony of Lisa Holderman Miles that brought the jury to the edge of their seats. Picking up Connie at the airport right next to where Fred's car was parked seemed to cinch it, until Lisa testified that Connie asked her to help with filling in the well. Then expert witness Dr. Snow explained how the gunshot permeated the skull, causing the death of Fred Wilkerson. He was followed by the DNA expert. When the audio tapes were submitted into evidence, the courtroom was deadly quiet. Jurors flinched in shock, hearing Connie yell, I'll kill you. Skin Edge did what he could, but there was so much overwhelming evidence. Then closing arguments were over, and it was in the jury's hands. Less than two hours later, they rendered a verdict. Connie Quedens was guilty of malice murder and possession of firearms by a convicted felon. Judge Lee elected to sentence her immediately to life in prison for Fred Wilkerson's murder, and the Wilkersons were over-the-top elated, and Clay was relieved that his promise to Carolyn was kept. Connie has never taken responsibility for her crimes. She is incarcerated in the Pulaski State Prison in Hawkinsville, Georgia. In 2006, her appeal was unanimously denied by the Georgia Supreme Court. Because her crimes are so callous, she has been consistently denied parole. One final fact. While digging into Connie's background in West Virginia, Investigators looked into her student days attending community college, and it seems there were rumors of a professor having an affair with a student, and the professor disappeared, never to be heard from again. The only evidence in the case? 
His vehicle was found in the Richmond airport. Hmm. And there you are, murder bookies. The story of two cold cases, both from the same area, both involving a well, horrific perpetrators, and the brilliance of cold case Sherlock Holmes, Clay Bryant. I hope you can appreciate the huge number of people involved in this, and I tried to name as many as possible, who had to work together to bring about justice for Gwendolyn Moore and Fred Wilkerson's families so that the truth would come out. I found these books pulled me in completely, and there are gems there that I have not presented to you, so I always say, read the books. I am incredibly fortunate that Clay Bryant chatted with me, and we went over a dozen or more questions I had, and this interview will be out in two weeks, episode 69, The Sage Speaks to Jill. Do not miss it. Speaking with Clay is like finding a long-lost member of the family that you feel you've already known. And I am now going to announce my next book, A Personal Crossover. The Death of Amy Robsart, an Elizabethan Mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. All right, this is pure indulgence for me. You may know how much I love Tudor history. So 28-year-old Amy Robsart was the wife of Queen Elizabeth I's favorite, Robert Dudley. In September 1560, she was found dead, her neck broken at the bottom of a flight of stairs in Cumnor Place. Her marriage to Robert Dudley had long been characterized by absences and stymied ambitions. Some said she was ill, others said she was depressed. More sinister rumors talked of murder. In this book, we look at Amy's unsolved death and examine who had the motive to commit such a dark deed. Was it an accident, suicide, or murder? And of course, I will share my conclusion based on the evidence. So read along with me, and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me, and I really need your help. Take a few minutes to leave an awesome review that will help me make new Murder Bookies. Please share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Join Patreon. It is so much fun. New summer designs are out on my spread shop, so get your merch. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with all of my sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and our wine pairing. Always trust your gut, lock your doors and windows, and do not park next to vans. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.